Good afternoon, uh, good evening or good morning as, as the case may be, uh, depending on your time zone. Uh, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science here at the University of Sydney and the CEO of the United States Study Centre. And, and welcome to a, a webinar uh, partnering with our great friends at the Perth US Asia Centre, part of our monthly uh, election briefing uh, series of chats we're doing between Gordon Flake, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre, and, and myself, and, and today um, with a special guest who I'll introduce in, in just a moment. Uh, but before we go any further, I do want to um, acknowledge that the United States Studies Centre uh, stands, as does the University of Sydney, on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people who are part of the Eora Nation, the First Nations people of the Sydney Basin and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today, our special guest uh, is Mia Love, um, a non-resident senior fellow with us at the US Study Center, uh, but coming to us today uh, from, from the state of Utah in the United States, which is home for Mia. And Mia, of course, served as Euro's representative uh, in the US House of Representatives for Utah's fourth district. Uh, up until uh, just recently, until uh, January of, of 2019. Uh, Mia was the first female black Republican elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. And, uh, and at the start of the 2015 Congress, she was appointed to the House Financial Services Committee, which uh, oversees the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And she joined the Congressional Black Caucus after taking her seat. And, and for all those reasons, uh, Mia uh, occupies a, a very special place in contemporary American politics, her own personal story and, and that unique distinction she held um, as, as the first black female Republican uh, elected to Congress and at the same time becoming a member of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, historically and overwhelmingly uh, populated. <laughs> Uh, by Democratic representatives um, in an era of intense partisan polarization uh, gave me a particularly interesting perspective on many issues in American politics and we were so delighted that Mia joined the center as a non-resident. Uh, last year we had Mia with us in Australia and of course circumstances make physical visits like that impossible. Uh, for the time being. But we're delighted, Mia, to, to have you uh, joining us this way uh, today. Oh, Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to see you again, Simon, and um, all of my friends. I, I miss Sydney. Um, I had such a great time when I was uh, out there last year. So hopefully things will open up again and we'll be able to see each other again face to face. Oh, that would be so wonderful. And, and Gordon, how are things with you today? Thanks for joining us again. Great pleasure. Never been a better time to be in the farthest city on the planet on land away from Washington, D.C. <laughs> a certain sense of being in a bubble within a bubble. So uh, delighted to be in WA and delighted to, to have a chance to meet Mia virtually for the first time. Mia, thank you for joining us. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, and indeed, the next time we have Mia in Australia, I, th I think a, a full country tour, um, not just the eastern seaboard. Well, uh, I spent both my undergraduate and graduate school years in, in the state of Utah that Mia represented. And so uh, I have a shared affinity for the West. And so we, we'd like to give you a tour of the Australian West as your great representative of the American West there. So I would love that. I'd be honored. That'd be great. <laughs> hey, look, 
we're going. To, we've only got Mia uh, for uh, half an hour today. Mia's um, got media commitments and um, in, in the evening this evening in the United States. So I want to cut right to the chase. And, and while we've got Mia, to make sure we're able to field some questions to her that have that have come in as people registered or in real time uh, over the course of the event. But uh, and so I, I think first question to you, Mia. Look open-ended, I'm wondering if you could just give us your sense, the state of the United States as we head into this July 4th long weekend, it's midsummer. Um, we're on the, we've had the George Floyd protests. Um, mm -hmm. We've got this um, enormous resurgence in COVID cases. Mm -hmm. uh, of course coming, you know, we're only four months away from a presidential election. Open-ended, how are oh, things going, well, Mia? It's a lot to unpack. I mean, there's yeah. a lot going on. We obviously have had some of the issues with the protests, what's happened with uh, George Floyd and other other um, issues. We've had uh, COVID that we've been dealing with and, and Utah has been struck a second time particularly hard. Um, that's been difficult. And all of that, we have a um, the elections that's coming up and the, uh, the majority of the city trying to shift to vote by mail, which is completely different. Utah has done it, but this is something that is going to be, that takes a couple of years to perfect and, and get correct. And the president's already saying, hey, um, there's gonna be a problem with this. This is really bad for Republicans. So I can already see uh, something that may be contested. Um, so tensions are very, are, are high. Um, and it, it's just, it's not the, the sense of ease. And uh, unfortunately, not even really the sense of the focus on patriotism and independence that we usually get in the 4th of July um, weekend. I hope that as people are spending time with their families, um, that they realize what's important. And um, that is patriotism, family, respect, and um, the fact that we're in the same boat. We're, you know, we've got common allies and common enemies. And We'll see. I mean, like I said, there's a lot to unpack. So you might have to ask me about each <laughs> and every individual thing. Um, but it, it's a little concerning. There's a lot to be concerned about. There's policy that is going to be um, formed, which I think is going to make up a lot of the um, electoral uh, who gets elected mm -hmm. uh, in terms of police enforcement uh, and police reform. And so there are people that are looking at that and saying, okay, who do I want to represent me in this, in this sense? Gordon, um, I'm guessing the same question for you. You're assessing the situation from, from much further away. And we'll come back to some in the second half of today. I, I guess we'll have more time to dive into some of the details, Gordon. But I'm just wondering briefly your sense of how the nation is tracking at this Midsummer pivotal weekend in the United States. Yeah, Simon, when we did this a month ago, uh, we made the observation that we really couldn't review a month. We could spend the entire hour reviewing just the last you know, hours worth of news, and, and that has proven ever more true. I mean, every one of the issues that Mia has rightly mentioned continue to be important, but there's a whole bunch of other developments that are taking place on the national security event, on the national security front. So you've got serious questions about Russian interference, uh, interference into the elections, uh, you know, questions about the president's decision-making vis-a-vis uh, American troops in Russia that have kind of come to the fore on top of that. Uh, but I think Mia put her finger right on it. It really comes down to, you know, it comes to health, 
It comes down to the, the health of our democracy in terms of the procedures associated with that. And, and I think one of the interesting things about your focusing on the 4th of July weekend coming up is that much of the current reversal uh, in the COVID situation in the United States stems from the last holiday in the United States, Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. yeah. Memorial Day weekend when there were picnics and family gatherings and where there was kind of a collective <laughs> sigh of relief. And, and, and at least part of the body politic in America decided to declare the fight against COVID over. Uh, and, and we are now seeing the results of that. Uh, so when you've got a situation where there are, you know, 50,000, 55,000 new cases in the United States in a single day, in the last 24 hours, we're, we're, we're facing a fundamentally different environment when you look at the downstream effects of that. Because of today, we're all focusing on the new cases. You know, there's a lag time between the death rate that follows from that, and there's also a lag time be, be, between that and the economic impact. And so those, those three horsemen that we were focused on earlier in terms of the virus uh, and, and mortality rate uh, and the economic impacts haven't gone away. In fact, they, they've you know, accelerated. And I think that's going to define much of our discussion in the coming months. Sure. Hey, thanks for that. And look, a question I, I want to get, make sure we get an opportunity to put to Mia. So I'll just cut to it right now. Mm -hmm. Amir, I'm just reminded when you were in Australia, one of the most frequently asked questions I saw you get is sort of reconciling where you are personally as a Republican, but where the president is and your take on how other Republicans are thinking about the president and his the case for re-election. Um, here in Australia, we're getting treated to, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the media's making a lot of it. Uh, the Lincoln Project uh, campaign, uh, other announcements in recent days that, you know, foundational parts of, you know, Republican Party royalty are publicly stating, you know, their, you know, well, the fact that they're unlikely and, and indeed will not support uh, the re-election of, of the president. I'm wondering if you could give us an update since we spoke to you when you were in Australia about these matters, um, how your sense of how that debate and that tension inside the Republican Party is, is, is tracking and, and how much of an impact it's likely to have on the election. Well, um, it, this is, uh, again, one of those questions where um, you've got some people that are always, you've got Republicans that are going to be in the president's camp. They're going to do everything they can. As a matter of fact, they see protecting the president as protecting the Republican Party. Um, and then you've got some like Liz Cheney, for instance, who is uh, the conference uh, chair mm -hmm. in, in, for the Republican Party, who actually has stepped out uh, periodically against the president on foreign policy issues. And recently it was the knowledge or lack of knowledge of the Russian bounty on American troops. I don't know if you've heard about that developing. Yeah. That's, that's something that has been a major concern of, um, of Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And then you get those um, who, are, who have felt as if protecting the Republican party means calling out the president when he is um, not doing what we believe is uh, following the party platform. Um, I've, I, I tend to fall into that camp. The problem that I have mainly with the president of the United States is more personality than it is policy. Mm -hmm. um, I do 
disagree on some policy, but my problem is when he, I, be, I believe, puts a wedge between Americans in comments like Twitter. And so you get a lot of Republicans that are in so many different areas. Um, I believe that preserving the Republican Party means that you have to preserve those policies that are within the platform, the, um, the principles that are within the platform. And if you follow one person and you allow that person to take those policies and those principles astray, you will end up fracturing or losing what the Republican Party stands for. So um, you get a lot of people that are in different camps. Um, I, I know where I am and um, I will agree with him when he is correct and I will call him out when I believe that as a parent, as an American, as a wife, that it's my responsibility to do what I can to um, make sure that we're united as, as a country. Jordan, I know, yeah. Before go we go to questions, can I ask a, a specific question? Mia, um, having lived in Utah myself, but it's been 30, 30 years ago, I wonder if you might give us an update on your state. Uh, you represented Utah in the Congress, and Utah has yeah. a reputation as being one of the, the, the reddest of the red states, and yet you have in Mitt Romney, uh, a high-profile senator who has, has not only marched with the Black Lives Matter, Matter protest, and took an early lead in, in wearing a mask, um, and yet again, just to put it in context, my home state of Arizona has long been trending towards majority-minority status, and it was just a question of time before Arizona flipped permanently blue, much the way that California or New Mexico or Oregon or Colorado had seemed to have done. Utah seems to be on a different trajectory, and yet yeah. Utah is an extremely well-governed state. It had early on kind of flattened the curve with COVID-19, and yet now it seems to have kind of lost that too. So I'm I'm, I'm a little bit confused by and removed. There, there are, there's a lot going on, Gordon. There's a lot going on, and. Um, one of the things that you have to understand is I, I think Utah works on a pendulum. When things swing so far one direction, there's always some sort of course correcting. Um, as a matter of fact, in the fourth district, um, I, the, Burgess Owens is the Republican nominee and Burgess Owens is a black male from the state of Utah. Now, if he gets elected um, and if he's the only black uh, um, American that gets elected, he will be the only um, black uh, Republican in the House of Representatives. It seems as if we just keep swinging back and forth as soon as we get more diversity in the Republican Party. Um, it just, you know, it, it just swings back. But I think that one of the reasons why um, for him this was a big deal or for us this was a big deal is because as I mentioned before, as police reform policies are moving forward, he has been not just outspoken for the Black community, but also outspoken for um, support of law enforcement. So I think that Utah is kind of feeling like, okay, this is the best person to lead us. And, and the times kind of led for him to be the um, nominee. As for Mitt Romney, um, Mitt is, uh, he's in a peculiar situation because um, I think the state is largely split. Some are very upset that he was the only one that voted um, for uh, the uh, impeachment proceedings, yeah. yeah, and some are are, are happy. Largely, it's probably um, some of the independents and a lot of the Democrats that are happy with that. But he is still um, getting a lot of flack. He's got he's got a, a lot of years. the se The Senate has, unfortunately, has some time to explain votes. 
House of Representatives doesn't have that luxury. Um, you 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 make a wrong vote, you're you can't get you can't get it off of you for for two years, or you make a vote that people don't like. Um, that's going to be held against you. So depending on if he runs again, um, uh, you know, I I believe I know that that's what's going to come up. That that's going to be the thing that comes up, the dividing factor. However, Utah um, is. They, they, we are a well-run state. Um, Spencer Cox, who is the uh, current lieutenant governor, is the it, it, the race hasn't been called, but he is uh, twelve thousand votes ahead, and it's trending his way. So, um, and he ran on a very conservative platform. So um, that's going to say something. But he also remember um, he's also been outspoken about the president's personality, also. So that's really interesting. I think that Utah tends to like independent speakers. They tend to like people who um, kind of step out a little bit, but they're still a conservative state. And um, I, that's what we're seeing in Utah. Thank you. Um, Mia, I've got, a, um, I've got so many questions for you coming in in so little time, but um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me try one. Um, um, when we had uh, former Senator Jeff Flake, uh, Gordon's cousin, uh, here with us in Australia, um, very early this year, um, which seems like so long ago now, but... Um, it's been the longest year. <laughs> um, and it's only 4th of July weekend. He, right. he's, he said he, could, he would not be voting for, 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 for President Trump um, in, in November. Um, how widespread is that where already, you know, Republicans, particularly from, um, you know, someone like Jeff from, you know, same part, you know, Western United States, uh, Mormon background. Um, how many other Republicans are there like Jeff Flake that have already made up their mind that they've seen enough and they're not going to vote for President Trump? Uh, well, I, I know Jeff is one of them, and I'm, I'm sure that there are several that are saying, uh, I don't know if Jeff is not voting at all, or if he is voting for um, former vice president. Uh, yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't say that. He just said he wasn't he voting. He didn't say that. Well, see, and, that's, and, that, and that is really important, because right. I believe that if there was a candidate that people felt very good about, um, uh, one of the ones that Howard Schultz, who's the uh, who's the president and CEO of Starbucks, there were a lot of Republicans that were hoping that he would jump into the race because they felt like here's somebody who's a little bit middle of the ground that they could they could feel good about voting for. Um, there there are several issues with uh, uh, with former Vice President Joe Biden that um, I I certainly have a problem with, and I think that. Um, uh, Jeff might have a problem with also mainly, especially with foreign policy and, and the previous administration, he's going to have to deal with the, some of the, the previous administration, uh, Russia, Iran, um, North Korea, uh, all of those issues that we, that there are a lot of Republicans that feel like we wouldn't be where we are today if that was handled a little hmm. bit better. Hmm. Um, but you've got people like Charlie Dent, who is my colleague and a commentator on CNN also, who has said that, well, he's going to vote for uh, Joe Biden. Um, I, I find that very rare. I find more common that people are either, they don't know, I'm talking about Republicans, sure. they don't know, or um, they may not vote. Right, right. Gordon, did you want to follow up on, on that at all? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing for me is that it's possible to 
have gone through the last five months and probably the next three months or four months left of the election without reading a single Democratic source. There, there is a growing group of Republicans who have, you know, on principle laid down their opposition to President Trump. And so you have uh, the Lincoln Project, uh, which are mm -hmm. primary Republican activists who have been really effective and have very much gotten the president's head. You have Republican voters against Trump. Again, an online presence very strong. But I was really struck this week by the, 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 the former or the current super PAC for George W. Bush making the announcement yeah. that they were going to campaign against Trump and for Biden. And I think there was yeah. 240 other Republican, you know, campaign, uh, experienced campaign officials, fundraising and the like, making that announcement. So it does seem to me that there is a growing Republican voice based on Republican principles, opposition to the current president. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. It's an interesting group, you know, and we're not talking about the, just the original never Trumpers. It seems to be a, a growing community. And I don't know whether you see that or if that's just uh, well, selection I, bias I on my part. That. I see that, but I also saw a lot of that in the previous election also. Um, there were a lot of uh, people yeah. that were very upset with the way that um, President Trump then candidate uh, handled all the rest of the uh, candidates. Um, I I was a early supporter of Marco Rubio. Um, I, I thought his message of unity um, was was a really good one in the American dream. Um, remember the way that uh, Carly Fiorina was treated. Um, so I, I saw a lot of that, and I saw a lot of people that felt that were never Trumpers, that were Republican. And we saw polls and everybody on election night thought it was going one way um, and it didn't. And so I tend to be very careful about what I see. And also remember, I'm going to say this because I, I'm, I promise you, um, I, I have a good sense that this is going to come up. There's a sense of um, poisoning the well a little bit on this uh, vote by mail. The president has actively been out there saying if this country goes to vote by mail, if we allow um, all of these states to vote by mail, um, then it's going to be very bad and they're going to steal the election away. So when you're already mentioning those things um, and the fact that there, we may not get uh, results, there's a good chance actually that we're not going to yeah. get results on election night, that it's going to be two, three weeks down the line. Um, Utah had to quarantine uh, the primary votes for uh, the gubernatorial race for 24 hours because of COVID. Uh, so I don't know what that's going to look like, but it, even the um, governor's race is not, is not. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen. The polls were completely different than we thought. Um, it depends on what the economy looks like. That was the one thing that the president was really pushing and going for. Yeah. And uh, with so many Americans on, um, unemployed, that's going to be, that's going to be something that's difficult. Mia, I, I know, where are you on vote by mail? I know when you were in Australia, it came up once or twice mm. that you felt vote by mail was pivotal to you losing re-election. Uh, yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering where you are might be personally in terms of you know, that as an institution and legitimacy or otherwise of some of the things yeah. Trump is saying about vote by mail. Simon, you ask the best questions with the most difficult answers. That's <laughs> my job tonight, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, um, so with vote by mail, again, this is one of those answers that 
in the state of Utah, the laws are a little different. In other words, when it comes to provisional ballots, um, the county clerk has a lot of leeway. You, they can keep or lose or, or, or trash um, votes that they, I mean, it's completely up to the discretion of the, of the county. So when you've got a close race and um, the county clerk is counting the votes, the poll watchers can't even watch what they're keeping and what they're losing. And that's all within the law. Um, so there are, there's leeway when it's close for things to sway one way or the other. And that's actually legal in the state of Utah. And we're going to have to address that with the legislature to make it match what other states look like. However, um, vote by mail in uh, Utah County, uh, it just, they didn't send it. They didn't get it right. They, there are a lot of growing communities that didn't get vote by mail. So when we went to vote by mail and there was only one booth available in all of these cities, my city um, that has 27,000, one booth. When you've got one booth and you've got a lot of people that didn't get their ballots, you've got five to six hour wait times. No, in line. That's, that's a sense of, um, you know, that's, that's, that in itself is um, voter suppression. However, Utah, um, it took a couple of years and this primary, ele primary election, we've got a new county clerk in Utah County, uh, went really well. Barely, nobody was in the lines. You had a lot of staff workers that had masks on, that were ready to take temperatures. Nobody was there. So I'm, I'm a mixed bag. I think that in states where you've worked it out and you've learned how to um, dry out the kinks, it works really well. Um, in other places, when it's new, that might be a problem. Got you've got to, dry, you've got to iron out the kinks. Hey, Mia, we're about to lose you at the bottom of the hour, but so this will probably be last question. Um, something that at the U.S. Study Center we're paying ever-increasing amounts of attention to, and I had a fascinating conversation with David Kilcullen, um, former American, uh, former Australian military officer, um, who was tracking the prevalence of armed groups in many cases on the left and the right, um, warming up and getting organised um, potentially. Um, ahead of the election. I'm just wondering your take on the prospects for a free, fair, but above all peaceful election in the November, given how high the temperature seems to be running in the United States, at least as we see it from this distance. If you, I mean, if I, if you would have asked me if we would be here today, even a year ago, I would say that no, elections are always um, pretty tense. Elections are always, um, you know, uh, people are anxious about it. But this is this is something that I think has been. Um, there's a lot of tension. Like I said, you've got um, the George Floyd issue, which is which has reminded me about a lot of past things that have happened to my brother and, and my children that I just brushed in the back of my mind. Um, there are a lot of tensions because of COVID. People being locked at home and and you know having to not, a lot of people not unemployed. Um, so the tension is higher than I think it's ever been. And so I, I think the gearing up is, is appropriate. Hopefully, I hate to say it, there's, it's probably going to be pretty tense. I hope not. I hope that um, we rise to the occasion and, and do a little bit better, but I think it's better to be prepared. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Okay. And yeah. Gordon, before we lose Mia, I'd like to yeah let yeah, you let me, have... let me just one thank Mia for your insights. I appreciate it. But I think you, you've actually highlighted some of the real concerns that we should have going forward. 
the fact that this early on the president is delegitimizing voting by mail, the elections itself, setting himself up for a close election means, at least in my mind, that it, the closer the election, the more divisive it will be for the country, the more fraught uh, the, we are will be with the risk of the types of things that Simon was talking about. So maybe my last question for you is the hardest. Um, you know, we're, we're four months out. Uh, where do you see things going? As, right now, it does see that, that Biden has a lead in the polls of just you know, far exceeds anything that Hillary Clinton ever had. Uh, although you express your own concerns and they're clearly there's on the, on the side of the Republican side, he doesn't seem to be nearly as divisive or as polemical uh, as the previous he, two. He's not saying very much, right? He's not out there a lot. He's not saying too much. And so in some ways, COVID-19 has isolated him a little bit. Um, and, and so it, it's really... That's going to be tricky, but you 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 really hit the nail on the head when you said that um, a close race is going to be the most contentious. The best thing that can happen is a race that is so that is just a landslide. I think that that's the best thing that can happen because you can't say um, that too much tinkering is going on. It's actually uh, more believable when the race is close. Uh, as you know, perception is always reality, and when you put the perception out there that something's already tainted. Um, that's that that becomes the reality. Uh, so the best thing that can happen is one way or the other, a landslide, and um, people gear up and they move on to the next thing or or plan the next thing. Um, so I that that's what that's here's to hoping. I do not think that that's going to happen. I think this race is going to be a lot closer than the polls say. I um, I, I I I firmly believe that. Okay. Um, so Mia Love is, yes, predicting a tightening in the polls. I, I think that's, that's right. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see how tight they get. Uh, and, and Mia, look, we had so many questions for you. And, and um, look, we've hit thematically. I think we've, we've, we've hit most of the themes where the questions <laughs> were coming from. Um, but we'll have to do this again before the election oh, for sure. Please ask um, me. I'm happy to join my friends in Sydney anytime. So, and her. And Perth, Gordon, you're my new friend, so <laughs> we'll get you out to the West. <laughs> I'd love it. Okay, thank you, Mia. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye, Appreciate thank it. you. Thanks. Hey, so Gordon, I'm wondering if if I could turn to some of the other topics that are are in the mix politically Indeed. at the moment, and 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 the one thought. You know, we had a fascinating uh, chat with uh, Jonathan Swan from, from Axios, where a big part of our conversation really turned to what is the Trump case for re-election at this point? And what campaign themes can they, can they run on? And, and given that the economy seems to, you know, has been taken away uh, and looks like it's going to stay away as, as a positive for Trump to run on, COVID would hardly seem to be, his management of the crisis would hardly be seen to be a positive. Um, I'm just wondering, Gordon, your thoughts based on what you're reading and who you're talking to on, on how Trump and, the, and, and his campaign might be thinking about how to solve that problem. What's the affirmative case um, or, or perhaps the negative case for Biden um, for, for his re-election campaign? 
Well, that's a very insightful question. And, and let me say, I, I joined the, the call for that wonderful conversation that you moderated with, with Jonathan Swan uh, of Axios. It's fantastic. Uh, kudos to you and your team at the United States Study Center. Just a steady stream of events to really help me kind of frame my own thinking. And also, if I might, just a second, really congratulations to you on getting Mia Love on as, as a non-resident senior fellow. She, that conversation was wonderful and to have her spend time in Australia is, is great for yeah, both, we'll have to do it again. Sure, her and for our country as well. Um, you really kind of put a, 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 a nice frame around the fundamental challenge for the Trump administration, right? As we discussed last month, you know, they had planned to run on the strongest economy in history. Um, and instead they're facing the worst pandemic since 1918, you know, the worst economic performance since the Great Depression. Uh, and the worst social unrest of the 1960s. And we discussed that before. Um, you can see that since that time, in the intervening month, they've been trying to will away these problems, right? So you've had a speech just two weeks ago with Mike Pence basically declaring COVID over, right? How many times have we seen both the president and the vice president just say, it will miraculously disappear, right? And they just tried to will it away. And they've also tried to will the economy to reopen. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Gravity still exists, right? And as a result, uh, we're, we're seeing, um, you know, today you're seeing just this stunning roaring back of the, of the, the COVID-19 crisis with 55,000 new cases in a single day in the United States. So we're not far off from where Anthony Fauci was talking about 100,000 cases a day. It's, it's not just, you know, months away. It could be weeks away before we start hitting that level. And then that in turn has its own impact on not, not the, the policy decisions around opening the economy, but the willingness of Americans to go out and shop and engage. And so I think what you're gonna see is a double dip as, as the economy goes back down again in response to the second wave. So you've hit the nail on the head. So then what does the president do? Normally, he would want to vilify Biden and vilify Democrats. But thus far, President Biden has not given him much of a target. Yeah, right. You know, he's not out there speaking. We've got two septuagenarian, you know, presidential candidates who neither of them are known for being particularly skilled in turning phrases. Uh, and so I think the, the, the Trump campaign was, was counting on, on Biden misstatements, Biden flubs that they could build upon. But as I was mentioning to, to me, and she seemed to confirm, Biden is just not as polemical as President Obama was not as polemical as Hillary Clinton was. And as a result, I think right now that the, the Trump campaign is left with just one strategy, which is delegitimizing the election, undermining the, the machinery, which you talked about last month yeah. of the elections, where there's gerrymandering, making it difficult to, to vote. So oh, yeah. while you heard Mia complain about five, seven hour waits, you know, in her district in Utah, you know, try to be a minority in Georgia where you're waiting, you know, nine hours, and, you know, or we've seen that a lot. You know, I, I've experienced that myself living in minority areas in, in Maryland, you know, the last two presidential elections. So my, my, my guess is you're going to see a, a very proactive effort at voter suppression, at it, not just physical voter suppression, but trying to, to, to decrease voter turnout, uh, you know, and, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a rough four months ahead. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Uh, both the rhetoric that I think you know, it's got to be a negative campaign now. Um, they haven't quite figured out what that is. Painting Biden as a, um, a captive of the left um, 
And of course, you know, it's on the other side too. The, the campaign Biden runs is to just, to, you know, go after Trump's record and, um, and, and you know, um, so it's a very personal campaign, <laughs> number one. Um, but number two, I think it's so unhelpful um, for a political leader, uh, the president of the United States to be attacking you know, the legitimacy of the vote and the voting process and election administration before before it's happened. That, there's a lot of heat uh, in American public opinion at the moment. That that conversation we had with David Kilcullen was, was pretty sobering, frankly. Um, hey, I want to, Gordon, if I can, <clears throat> perhaps draw you out a little more on a question that Mia artfully dodged, <laughs> and that is... Um, um, and that is where the Republican Party is like this steady. You, you brought it up in your question to me about, you know, the George W. Bush group that is saying they're not, you know, they're funneling money away from Trump. And um, and a question we've got here from um, perhaps our most regular webinar attendee on the Sydney side, Tony Booth, you know, if the polls don't turn around in the next four months, the the GOP senators and you know, the party more broadly start to turn on Trump, some sort of effort to save themselves, perhaps. Have you, have you got a sense of that, um, perhaps through your family connections or whatnot, or any, any, any other lines of sight on that that you might want to share? Well, going back to the, what Mia mentioned about her own senator in the state of Utah, Mitt Romney. You know, he and, and you know, our, our shared friend and my cousin Jeff Flake are thus far the exception rather than the rule. You know, yeah. Mia herself copped a lot of personal attacks from, from the president for her positions, right? Uh, because she had been, had the temerity to be relatively independent uh, in assessment of him and his actions. Um, thus far, if you're looking at elected Republicans, they remain remarkably in lockstep with the president. Yeah, yeah. But that's not true of those outside of current elected offices. And, and what I think you're seeing is a growing number of Republicans who are Republicans in principle, you know, you know, making a clear distinction between their conservative values and Trumpism. And so, again, if, if you're interested in, in watching what we would consider to be traditional Republican dark arts at campaigning leveraged against the president, just look up the Lincoln Project. Go to them on Twitter or Facebook. It's just, again, they're really, really effective at negative campaigning, and there's a number of other groups like them. Uh, you know, the Midas touch and others that are just kind of directly attacking the president, you know, but from the right. And it's, it's, it's a dynamic I haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah. It's Maybe, a... you know, Pat Buchanan against George Bush, you know, back in 1992 with the some damage, but nothing is organized and as well financed as these groups and groups. And they've clearly got under the president's skin, which is really interesting. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. So just on the Lincoln project, um, I think we've got a great set of American politics tragics on these webinars, but if anybody doesn't know, you should go check out their website. It, it is fascinating for the reasons that Gordon was just articulating. Um, Steve Schmidt, who was John McCain's campaign manager, is one of the big powerful voices, great message maker, and, and Rick Wilson, another, you know, up until recently, these are conservative people. And I think determined to sort of save the Republican Party from itself and, and by extension, the United States, I think that they would argue. Um, but remarkable, and I'm just trying to think of another occasion in recent American political history where 
sort of this close to the the case for an incumbent an incumbent president seeking re-election is facing that kind of a sustained campaign from you know as i said earlier party royalty um deeply respected voices inside the his own party um um it, it's it's really gobsmacking um but do check out their their ads um yeah. If you have one other thing, which it, it seems tangential, but it's actually quite remarkable in its normalcy, right? Um, you know, the United States in this fight against COVID really has, has squandered its options. You know, because it is now so rampant, they no longer have a viable containment strategy. They don't have the option to do test testing. They, they would need to be testing at 1.3 million tests a day. They're, they're below 500,000, and the president seems to be encouraging them to test less, not more. You know, so without that, you can't do contact tracing. Uh, and so while you can continue to do hand washing and social distancing, there's no longer the political willingness to kind of shut down the economy, at least through policy measures. So basically all you're left with is face masks. Right? And yet even that issue has become so highly, I wouldn't say partisan, but politicized, right? Because it's really Trumpist versus the others. And one of the breaks that took place this week, which I thought was fascinating, was to see Dick Cheney. And again, yeah. Mia referenced his daughter, Liz Cheney. You know, wearing a mask and with the with the with the headline "Real Men Wear yeah. Masks," right? And then you had Marco Rubio come out with the mask, you know. And then you had Mitch McConnell say, "Don't vilify people for wearing masks." So I think finally there's a, there, there's at least a group of elected Republicans who are saying, "Look, we can't go through this." So Mike Pence himself, who famously over the last few weeks, out of pure deference um, to the president, has not worn a mask himself. This week, going to Arizona, wore the mask, right? So I, I do think there's a sense that, that, that the president's got a little bit too far from this. Even the president himself, the day before yesterday, said he, he now likes masks. He thinks it makes him look like the Lone Ranger. Uh, for those of you who have not watched the old Lone Ranger TV series, he, he wears a mask in a different place. But, but hey, progress, baby steps, baby steps as we go along. Uh, um, um, Gordon, you mentioned Arizona, and I, I want to come to that uh, now. Um, you have a personal history there. Um, but like the way COVID-19 is intersecting spatially, geographically, US politics, but long-standing contours of race and economic inequality as well. Um, but Arizona, the, the case counts there, but overlaid on the fact that long before COVID, it was in the crosshairs for this election cycle with a vacant Senate seat, thought to be the next mountain time zone state that might be ready to flip uh, from red to blue. Uh, Gordon, just again, given your own personal familiarity and family connection to the state, I'd love your sense on you know, that, that peculiar and distressing at times intersection between the, the course of the pandemic and the, and the political situation in that very important state. Well, thank you, Simon. Uh, the month between our discussion today and our discussion last month uh, has really been the personalization of these crises in the U.S. for me. My, my in-laws in, in, in Virginia, uh, three of them have been stricken by the virus, uh, one hospitalized for six days, and most of the day do seem to be in the men, but it's been a frightening time. And I have two aged, you know, mid-80-year-old parents living in Arizona, which is now uh, the hotspot in the United States. In other words, cases per capita, Arizona has the most cases 
the, the increase in the cases per capita of any other state in the United States. So to put it in context for viewers in Sydney, uh, New South Wales has 7.5 million people. The state of Arizona has 7.2. So a remarkable parallel between New South Wales and Arizona. And yet, as mentioned, Arizona just yesterday had 5,000 new cases. cases yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is now approaching 90,000 cases. And the interesting thing is that there's this really, really banal debate, uh, and we hear it from the president himself about the link between testing and cases. Now, the more ignorant among them tend to suggest that we're only seeing new cases because we're doing testing without understanding there's no causality there. It's just a matter of knowledge and testing. But in the case of Arizona, since May 25th, they've increased the testing 175% over the course of a month. The number of COVID cases has increased 698%. So the notion somehow that we're just catching, and a more alarming statistic in Arizona today is that one in four tests is coming back positive. Positive, yeah. 25%. So you compare that to where you New York New York is today, it's about 4% coming back positive. We're not testing nearly enough in Arizona. So we don't have a grasp on it. We know that the virus now is far more widespread than we know just because you're simply not doing the test. Uh, and the impact, of course, hasn't yet been felt because the impact will be seen with that lag time in a couple of weeks. Two, two so, weeks or whatever. Again, it's, it's really personal. Now, you don't want to criminalize policy decisions. And I've long agreed with that. But in cases like Arizona, I made a distinction on the media earlier this week that while New York and Washington in the early cases in the U.S. were tragedies, cases of Texas, Florida, and Arizona, they're criminal because these were policy decisions. And the, the area where it becomes really interesting is that on the 7th of May, uh, the Arizona Department of Health under Governor Ducey made a decision to cut off their collaboration with Arizona State University on data because their data was telling Arizona, do not reopen, it's too early. And that was against- I remember that now, testing. you're right. Yeah. So if, yeah. if you're suppressing data like Florida did, like Texas did, like Arizona did, that means this uptick in cases did not need to happen. It only happened because policy was made based on suppressed data. And therein you get you know, some really serious recriminations for the political leadership, uh, which again, as, as indicated, I'm starting to take personally, <laughs> if that's clear enough there. Well, and, and Gordon, um, you told me a couple of weeks ago about your, your family's exposure in, um, in Maryland and you know, our heart goes out to, uh, to you and your family and, and being this far away, like I, you know, a lot of other expatriates who I'm sure are, are on yeah, the- uh, It's when the bubble of Australia is, is less protective and a little bit more restrictive and you, yeah. know, you can't get there. But can I add another element to it? Sure, sure, Gordon, of course, yeah. And, and that is that, that there is some sense that among Republican lawmakers, the early feeling was that the primary victims uh, of this virus, and, and David Frum, the former Republican chair, I said this very clearly back in May, they're gonna be minorities, they're largely going to be the working class. They're not Trump voters. So let's just take the punch. And Arizona was the same same, same way. In, in April, uh, in my hometown, I was born and raised as a 1% white minority in the, in the Navajo Nation, the Navajo Indian Reservation of Northeast or, or corner of the state. There was a real pocket uh, of COVID outbreak there. But the people in metropolitan Phoenix said, oh, you know, that's just out there on this reservation. There's nothing to do with it. And the state did not respond in a similar way. And so the feeling was, look, COVID is a blue state problem. It's just those 
you know, people in the living in the tenement in New York City, we don't have to worry about it. And so what's going to be really interesting as this continues to grow and is growing in the Sun Belt and is growing now in largely red states because of decisions they made, what the political implications there are, are, are for that. I don't think it's clear yet, but I don't think it looks good if you're looking at this from, from Washington or from the White House. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the other thing you told me, Gordon, and why I wanted to ask was that, you know, what's happened, the way this is falling disproportionately, wave one uh, on, on, in non-white parts of America where working from home and social distancing and is, is just not economically feasible in, in, in a lot of cases. But um, hey, two questions, at least on this now that so let's 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 deal with it, Gordon, if you don't mind. Um, um, and this is um, Sarah has asked this and I that's all Sarah has only identified herself as Sarah. <laughs> and Ms. Josely Muniv, if I pronounce that correctly, um, raising that Trump is seeing the writing on the wall and is looking around for an exit strategy. Um, I heard James Carville, the Democratic strategist, and of course James Carville would would pump some oxygen into into this story that that Trump will cut and run somehow. Um, Do you put any credence in that or you put any stock in that? Um, Nothing Trump has done has been traditional. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you can't rule it out. You know, you think back to LBJ and his decision you know, not to run, knowing full well that he would have lost in that, that context. Uh, um, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. Uh, I have a hard time believing this anything other than wishful thinking, right, on, on the part of someone in the um, There is a line of thinking that the president, as, as the polls continue to, to, devolve, to, to divide, and, and he falls further and further behind, rather than lose, would like to just declare victory and leave. Uh, there is another side of that, too, that suggests that his entire life, this is an individual who's always just kept one step ahead of the law, right? Uh, and there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of issues, legal and otherwise, that are nipping at the heels of this president. And his ability to keep them at bay are tied directly to his uh, influence over the 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 levers of power. And so if you look look over the last month alone at the actions of the current Attorney General of the United States in direct defense of the president, you know, actions, you know, the removal of, of the, 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 the district attorney of the Southern District of New York, you know, um, uh, you know, those are issues that, that I think would probably urge him to stay in. Um, and obviously, the closer we get to the election, we're four months out, uh, the closer we get to the election, uh, the less space there is for that. Uh, he today and, and this week seems to be very much focused on the convention. You know, even today, once again, tweeting out his his displeasure with North Carolina for not hosting it there. This yeah. Take it to Florida, which now is is ground zero, right? You know, Florida in a single day has more cases than Australia has had in, during the entire pandemic. So uh, Rough times ahead. How's that for a long-winded way of saying? That's I all right. Think, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 I think. I think it's unlikely too. Um, um, uh, it, it'd be unprecedented. Uh, maybe not unprecedented, but 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 but. Um, hey, um, 
Gordon, I wonder, before we wrap things up, um, we're getting close to the end of time. Um, putting your foreign policy hat back on, you know, the United States Study Center, you know, the, you know we're, we're focused on a couple of big questions uh, for the balance of this year. You know, what is the, the trajectory of American power, politics, but critically prestige? Um, here in Australia principally, but I know the Perth US Asia Centre's focus, as the name suggests, spans the region. You have an awful lot of connectivity in real time with scholars and thought leaders um, in, in you know, Southeast Asia, up to India, of course, your background as a career specialist. I'm wondering what you're picking up through those networks about something we really haven't talked about in these discussions yet. Um, the impact of everything that's been happening in the United States, but perhaps the ability of the American state to respond to a, a societal-wide crisis like COVID-19, um, set against the existing challenges American foreign policy uh, was having with respect to the Indo-Pacific. Where is the region in terms of its thinking um, about the trajectory of American power and, and, and relatedly American prestige? Well, look, um, I've been very impressed with how you and your colleagues at the U.S. Study Center focus on politics and, and, and power and prestige in the U.S. I think, recall, piece. Thank you, Gordon. I think you recall a, a conversation we had a little bit earlier that you might want to add a new one into that, which I'd never, ever thought of, which is pity. Right? I mean, the notion that the United States is a country to be pity, it, it just never entered my thought process. The U.S. is feared by many. The U.S. is respected by many, you know, hated, loved, but pitied was just never part of the process. And between, you know, the, the, the civil disruption uh, and particularly the U.S. response to COVID-19, because the reality is the world now has a pretty good idea of what is needed to respond to this pandemic. We've seen it in Europe with remarkable success. We've seen it in Asia with remarkable success in terms of Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam, you know, almost every country. There are countries that are going to really struggle with it. Philippines has had a hard time. Indonesia is going to have a hard time, as will India. But, but again, I'm not sure that those were countries that you would normally mention as, as, as comparators to the United States in terms of its capacity to respond to something like this. So there is an element in every one of those countries of bewilderment, of confusion, of concern, of pity about the United States. Um, uh, um, I will say that in the coming four months, and going back to your previous question of, of how does the Trump campaign position itself, it's pretty clear that their desired framing of this issue is to blame everything on China and then to cast Joe Biden not just as a tool of the left, but as a tool of China and as weak on China. Uh, thus far, they've not been very effective in that casting because the Biden campaign has come out with some remarkably strong statements on China. And the underlying you know, response is that, you know, despite rhetoric, uh, you know, and, and Trump has been really great in his rhetoric against China, as has the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And, and again, the Vice President gave a remarkable speech on human rights on China, which is particularly salient this week when you're dealing with the new national security law in, in Hong Kong, et cetera. But despite the rhetoric, right, in terms of actions by a divisive approach to alliances by withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, by you know undermining the rules-based order that Australia so relies upon, 
you know, in many respects, this administration has been a tremendous gift to China. And that seems to be the message from the Biden campaign, that we will have a real policy towards China and we'll work with allies and we'll work with the international system. Uh, so that recognition seems to be playing out in the countries in the region. But again, it depends on the country, depends on where they're at. Most countries in the region, like Australia, are largely consumed with their own fights, uh, with the with the the, the both the pandemic and the yeah. economic response. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, as a topic, we will certainly come back to Gordon. I think any conversation between two Australian-based centres with a focus on the U.S. and, in your case, also the region, um, the foreign policy consequences of the election. Um, and the implications for Australian foreign policy and Australian national interests uh, as they emerge, and, and in particular, the role that US-China relations will play as a campaign theme and, and what likely policy settings might look like after the election. That is just core business for both of our centres um, and, and a topic we will certainly be talking about um, in, in, in chats as, as we go forward. Can I give you one final compliment? I, I saw yesterday that two sitting U.S. senators, you know, in an article that they wrote uh, for the Diplomat, not only cited, you know, but 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 referenced and directed people to look at the United States Studies Center's report averting crisis. And so, in terms of policy impact, to get sitting U.S. senators to kind of recognize the work that you had done on that question, hats off to you and your team. Well done there. Well, thank you, Gordon. And, and, and that's not a bad note to end on. Um, I think no matter what happens <laughs> in, in the election, and we had a few questions about this, about, about Australia, China, US, and we, we really haven't addressed them head on. But I think the only thing I'll say briefly in, by way of in, in the wrap up here is to say that, and I think Gordon, you and I would are one mind on this, that no matter what happens, I think the, the, the mindset in the United States that's informing sort of American thinking towards China, um, talking about China as a strategic competitor, that we're in a return to great power rivalry, that survives the election no matter who wins. I think the only thing that does change might be the way the US goes about instantiating that mindset in policy. Um, Biden perhaps addressing that multilaterally with allies uh, and a sort of more conventional sort of approach to, to, to the prosecution um, of, of policy. Um, but, but, I, but there is no, there is nothing in this election cycle um, that suggests a, a revision or a, or a retrenchment of, of sort of the, the hardening uh, and uh, of attitudes towards China in the United States. Agreed. Yeah, okay. Uh, and we'll leave it at that, but certainly a topic to come back to. Uh, and, and as I said, core business for our centers and, and, and for the many people who, who join uh, our, our webinars. Um, hey, um, that brings the hour to a close. And I'm wondering, look, to say thank you to Mia and first thing, and thank you to Gordon and the team out in Perth. We're alternating the hosting duties. Today was a Sydney hosted event. Next one's back on, on you guys and you'll do your usual superb job. We look forward to that in, in a month from now. Um, let's, if we may, tease some upcoming uh, events 
And the first one, Gordon, that's yours. You want to you want to talk about that rule briefly? Now we're honoured. You will all have seen that the Australian government, as announced by the Prime Minister on Wednesday, has updated its 2016 Defence White Paper with a new strategy. And we're delighted that the the Minister of Defence, Linda Rendles, is going to be giving both a, a hybrid event, both in person and a public webinar event on Monday, uh, launching those new security documents. Uh, so we welcome you all to join us. Just uh, Google us and, and you'll find the, the registration on our website for Monday morning, bright and early in Perth at 7.30. But for those of you in Sydney, a much more humane hour at 9.30. Yeah, and I, I've certainly signed up for that one. And the link there is at the bottom of the slide, um, the events part of the Perth Centre's uh, website. That's a great get, Gordon. Uh, great timing. Um, it'll be very interesting to hear what the minister's got to say uh, the way her remarks will, I think, intersect with the interests of the of the of the Perth US Asia Centre. Very it'll be a fascinating conversation. And then back to the Sydney Centre. The the following day, um, this will be a fantastic conversation. Christian Bros um, was a senior advisor to Senator John McCain when McCain chaired the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, and he has a book. Uh, that has just released on on looking at um, what's happened to American military capability um, in relative terms uh, as China and a new generation generation of conventional weapons have have, have have come online, the challenges to American power that result from that and the the challenge uh, that the US faces uh, in in retaining uh, parity, if not supremacy, uh, in a, an increasingly high-tech and fast development cycle, uh, with 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 respect to to weaponry and, and and defenses and cyber and the full spectrum of tools available to nation states these days. That's a that's a that'll be a a fascinating conversation hosted by the U.S. Study Center's Ashley Townsend and Christian who was at the very heart of, of those matters. And then finally, last thing I want to tease is this fantastic event we've, we've got coming up on February, uh, sorry, Friday, 24th of July, former Prime Minister John Howard, the current ambassador to the United States, Arthur Sinodinus, the former ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey and Michael Thorley, Bob Zelig, who was the U.S. trade representative at the time of the Australia-U.S. free trade agreement, Wendy Cutler, who served in that same role during the TPP negotiations. That'll be a 90-minute a, a conversation about the, the economic relationship and where that is, has been and where it's going, particularly set against this rapidly evolving strategic environment uh, in the Indo-Pacific where um, everything is being inflected and ramified and touched by uh, US-China relations at the moment. So that'll be a, a fascinating event um, coming up um, at the end of July, 24th of July. Um, that's enough promoting of future events. Thanks, Gordon. My pleasure. Look forward to next month. Thank you so much. And, and thank you, everybody. We'll see you for another uh, chat with Gordon uh, in, um, in about a, a month from now. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.